0: Welcome to FIC Focus, where Bloomberg Intelligence Fixed Income Credit Currency and commodities Strategists and Analysts discuss their short and long-term views on debt markets and issuers. Now, here's the Bloomberg Intelligence FIC Research Team.
1: Good morning, good morning, and welcome to this month's Emerging Markets Lens and Look Through Podcast. I am your host. Damien Hour, and today we are joined by Mr. Caesar Masri, Managing Director and Head of Cross Asset Emerging Market Research at Goldman Sachs. Caesar, a real privilege to have you here. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us.
0: Great, thanks so much for having me. Busy time in markets, so always good to uh, to have a chat and try to
1: figure out what's going on. Busy time to say the least, right? Um, Well, look, I mean, let's just talk about busy. I mean, it's the dollar. It's always been the dollar. The relentless dollar strength is fueling comparisons to the early 80s. We know what happened then. We had coordinated FX intervention, the 85 Plaza Accord. And, you know, a lot of people are talking about similar outcome this time. Do you agree with that? Well, we think the
0: dollar is going to strengthen a little bit more before it gets uh, gets weaker. And, you know, anytime someone brings up a historical analogy, we're, you know, always quick to say, well, what's the same, what's the same, what's different? I mean, I do think the 80s was a very different period. Um, and let's say maybe it was in the U.S.'s interest for the dollar to get curbed. Um, you know, they were looking mostly at trade deficits and, and things like that as being a big a big problem in today's environment you know of course a stronger dollar can harm the global economy and that and that matters but at the end of the day you know the fed and policymakers are looking to curb inflation and a stronger dollar probably helps that more than more than hurts it again within some limits um but if you think of financial conditions and so on stronger dollar tightens financial conditions and and might even help uh bring bring down inflation so i'm less convinced of the plaza accord type um, analogy. Um, I mean, again, there is some intervention going on. Look at Japan recently, for example. So sure. there are some, some parallels. Uh, but I think this is going to be more, you know, done in the interest rate, financial condition, getting inflation down realm. That that's what I think will ultimately stem a uh, dollar dollar strength.
1: Interesting, interesting. No, I don't disagree with that. I mean, it would take something, and this is certainly a different environment. And for me, it's it's most notably about China, right? I mean, if the, if there's, you know, coordinated FX intervention on the likes of what we saw in the 80s, I think, you know, China would benefit from that, at least tangentially. And I think that's one reason, you know, a lot of practitioners are saying, you know, we may not see that same thing happen again. So uh, it's every man for himself, it seems, with the BOE front and center. <laughs> but, um, you know, shifting to Asia, I think it's important to note that, you know, although they were pretty much laggards in. The beginning, right? I mean, you know, this 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 rate hacking cycle across EM was was really led by the likes of Eastern Europe and Latin America, but it seems now we are seeing central banks rising to the occasion here and tightening policy across Asia. So, my first question is why would they wait so long, right? And secondly, you know, are Asian central banks indeed better positioned to fight inflation than their peers in some of these other regions?
0: Yeah, I I think there's there's a lot going on there. I mean, one. Again, you know the sequencing of the of the virus going back now to two years ago and sort of just the the flow of the cycle has been regionally different. And so I think you can explain some of the central bank differences through that through that lens. I mean, in general, you know with the exception of maybe you know India and parts of ASEAN, Asian economies tend to be lower yielders. FX vol was much lower. Than in Semia and Latam, and so I think there there were reasons to be later in the hiking cycle. One could also say most low yielding economies were later in the cycle to raise to raise rates, and so now the the Koreas of the world and so on, you know catching catch, catching up to that. so um I, I think there are a number of reasons there um, on the import cost side, the FX side that that kind of led to this divergence in policy. You know, are Asian central banks better positioned to fight inflation? I think you know, just the starting level of rates and kind of the changes we've seen, sure, will will probably help tam- tamper in- inflation. But as we know, in EM, one of the major drivers and focuses of inflation is indeed at the headline level. And so frankly, the external environment of more controlled food and fuel prices, I think has been sort of the most helpful thing, you know, broadly. I don't think that's too dissimilar, you know, from Asia to 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 Latam. Um so look, we think inflation is basically still a problem, um, but it's quite different between EM and DM where we're more focused on core uh in the US. I think I think EM resiliency on
1: this issue probably has has more room to go. Well you mentioned the US there, so how can we not talk about the Fed? I mean do we feel that the Fed can engineer a soft landing, or has that chip sailed? I mean, what risks are the markets not, you know pricing in with regard to the Fed as we head into your, you know, the fourth quarter and into year end?
0: Yeah, I mean, yeah, well, Damien, I mean, you're hitting all the the big hit <laughs> the big yeah. questions. sorry. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and, and again, it's you know that's terminology. what What is a soft landing? I mean, look, the s and p is sure. down what? twenty four percent year to date. Um, you know, that's kind of in line with some other recessions. And so, you know, is, you know, have we already had the hard landing in 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 markets? Um, uh, uh, you know, that's 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 uh, to be to be debated. Look, we 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 think certainly the probability of recession is quite high when you look out one or or two years. And I think more importantly, there is more room for the markets to price this. So specifically for you know benchmark index like the S and P 500, um, my colleague David Kasten says 3150. Is probably the number that would reflect a hard landing. So that's not just you know higher rates and lower multiples, but that's if you actually get earnings earnings downgrades. Again, I think EM would remain you know on the equity side kind of high beta to that, and there certainly is is, is room to move lower. So I do think you know defensively positioned is kind of how we how we would stick. You know that the market will raise the probabilities of of, of hard landing. And by the way, you're seeing a little bit of that if you look at like Fed fund futures of you know hikes through early next year, but then perhaps some cuts in the middle of next year that might reflect some of the left tail you know left tail risk there but the last thing i just say is you know in terms of what the market's not paying attention to the pain trade i do think it's oil i mean i think interesting oil a, a supply shock on oil would royal markets because that of course has been a helpful uh, the, the decline in oil prices has been a helpful ingredient, again, from an EM perspective, to keep local rates insulated and inflation yes. coming down. So I think that's kind of the thing. I, I mean, I think, again, this hard landing story, I think people understand the thesis behind and how you want to be positioned. I think oil could be, um, you know, a, a left tail risk.
1: Well, that's interesting. I mean, look, I mean, I, of course, we, you know, I've cost, and of course, I mean, 3150 hard landing, but I mean, markets appear to be operating as if that Fed put is dead, that they will not be running to the rescue this time around. I mean, Is that something that we agree with here? I mean, what would it take for the Fed to really step in and backstop asset prices?
0: Yeah, I mean, again, a key question, which, um, you know, what is the Fed put? Well, historically, you know, you could say historically now, really post GFC, you know, period, which is now 10 or 12 years long you know, it was in the interest of the Fed to have equities go higher in so much as inflation was consistently surprising to the downside. I mean, various things about forward guidance and so on. But effectively, I think that's kind of a key ingredient as to why there was a Fed put in the first place. So surely, you know, for fighting inflation, um, again, for, for similar to what we discussed about the Plaza Court, it's like higher S&P on its own actually loosens financial conditions and may not be me helpful. So if you ask, you know, as the Fed put dead, the way I would think about it is where you know where are financial conditions and you know if the S and P were to fall uh, significantly, whether it's that 3150 type level, you know, that would tighten financial conditions all else equal, you know, pretty substantially. I do think something like that would cause the Fed to blink. So, it you know, again, the the the, the term Fed put is, is is used in many different ways, but the way I would think about it is financial conditions. And if equities contributed to a, a further significant tightening of financial conditions, not only do I think the Fed would again so-called blink, I think the market would be you know very reluctant to price in you know months and months of further hikes. I think it would that pricing.
1: You know, for our audience, I mean, this is really key because, you know, when I think of financial conditions in this environment, you know, I'm looking more at credit spreads than I am equities, but you make a great point. You know, if equities do decline by a certain amount and that kind of, you know, hits hits where it hurts most. Yeah. I mean, I guess, you know, the Fed put is back in play, but, you know, here's another one. I, the Fed put, What what is that really, right? Um, but Caesar, you know, I hear this term hawkishness all the time. You know what I mean? What is mm-hmm. I mean, like, you know, I mean, you've got, um, you know, you, you've got the Fed, you know, balance sheet unwind picking up speed here. You know, you've got a projected drop in bank reserves. I mean, are we thinking the plumbing is going to manage well this time around? I mean, how should EM investors position amid rising short term rates? And, you know, at what point can investors begin to think about the Fed maybe taking a pause?
0: Yeah. I mean, peak hawkishness, as you say, you know, it, it's, uh, you know, is it, is it the market pricing of Fed action? Is it actually Fed speak? I mean, at the end of the day, I think it wasn't just Jackson Hole that moved rates. I mean, that was a big, uh, you know, sort of, uh, let's say, pivotal moment, but it was also the surprise in CPI, right? And so I do yeah. think data matters. And ultimately, you know, if, if inflation stays sticky, you know, you're, you're still going to be talking about peak and further peaks of, of, of hawkishness. In in terms of, you know, liquidity risk, I do think there's been some, you know, kind Countries maybe that haven't come to market as as smoothly as possible Um, but I would say two just quick things one is that if I look at the corporate market the corporate equity market there has been a fairly normal pricing of balance sheet risk meaning companies with weak balance sheets are being punished you know linearly let's say with the way credit spreads are moving and so when you see a consistency across asset markets that is a little bit helpful or that tells you that they're functioning properly that you're not having one market being being very dislocated. But on the flip side, you know, again, if you look at the corporate fundamentals, debt to equity ratios of sort of like non-financial, non-commodity companies in EM have risen from about 0.5 to 0.7 over the past few years, Uh, interest coverage ratios, which have been between seven and eight times for the whole post GFC era are now down to six times. And so I think there are some vulnerabilities showing up that the longer you go with this high rate environment, and we think about how many companies have refinanced debt over the past few years. I mean, I I do think you start to get into some some of these balance sheet risks at the micro level.
1: Interesting. I mean, look, well, I mean, we know that uh, emerging market policy rates have kind of you know, been tightened to the point where we're well above pre-pandemic levels. I mean, but what's most interesting is, you know, you take that thought of, you know, the, the, a U.S. recession, you expanded, you know, to emerging markets more broadly speaking, you're already seeing activity data in places like China and Brazil coming off pretty considerably here. I mean, you know, I'm curious, you know, at what point does the rubber meet the road there and which economies do you feel are most at risk of, you know, kind of slipping into recession, you know, call it Q4, Q1, Q2 of next year?
0: Yeah, so there's a couple things on on the you know the policy cycle side and financial conditions domestically slowing in EM, but then also the just sort of external environment. I mean, in general, i would just say from an EM perspective, the way we've been positioned, the way we've been recommending investors position is is basically to be defensive um, uh, as opposed to cyclical um, and and sort of less less exposed to China's growth engine and U.S. goods demand. So from an external perspective, I think basically North Asia has been, um, again, more the concerning places in terms of, of growth dynamics, whereas LATAM and coming out of the rate hiking cycles, perhaps in some, in some places, there might be some improvement on the, on the domestic front. However, I think there's, there's kind of a broader, a broader thing going on here. I mean, to some extent, we talk about policy rates and, and coming back to some of your early questions about the sequencing of hikes, right? This whole early hiker thesis, which was, you know, parts of semia but but really LATAM as well. You know, when will we receive, when will be the time for EM local uh, sort of rates to do well? I mean, sort of the weird thing to say is there have been a number of EMs. Again, Brazil's probably the poster child here. That have been very defensive, yeah. you know, in this in this rate sell-off. Now, you could say you were, you got paid, like you had that premium harvested because of the early hiking thesis. And you know, if you look at rate differentials between GBIM and, and U.S. Treasuries, for example, right, that, that's actually fairly fairly narrow now, right, because yeah. U.S. rates have, have moved up so much. So, you know, we ask the question, when do you want to receive? Well, you could have received all year and paid and hedged with other with other rates. Um, I think Brazil has been one of the few places where you could you probably could have been. Okay, just doing outright receivers. You know, we have the January 25s uh, on. Um, but the point is, I, I think after we get through this, this period of let's, let's, let's hope that inflation cools down, I actually think it's going to be U.S. assets that, that actually might look attractive, um, uh, even more so because EM has
1: already outperformed from this perspective. Interesting. Interesting. I mean, that is interesting because, you know, a lot of people are kind of leaning in on places, you know, in Czech Republic and and, in Chile, you know, thinking that, you know, yeah, you know, we've seen some money made in Brazil. Perhaps we'll see the same here. But yeah, no, I don't disagree. I mean, it's tough to fight the king dollar. And so to that expect, I mean, look, dollar strength is literally crushing everything in its path, Caesar. I mean, most notably those very non-dollar debt markets that comprise over half of the call it $57 trillion universe for benchmark eligible debt. And I'm referring to the Bloomberg Global Ag. I mean, in your opinion, I mean, markets appear to be, you know, very, you know, defensive from a dollar perspective. Obviously, they just think it's going to keep going. I mean, what would it take to turn that around? And and is that would, you know, is that a risk that markets are prepared for?
0: Yeah, it's funny. You say a, a risk that the dollar could turn around. I think that everyone would, would, would yeah. sigh of, big, a big sigh of relief if that were to happen. Um, again, as we know, look, the dollar is, is special and, and and all that sort of thing. Uh, uh, meaning, you have the dollar smile. So when when the U.S. is looking stronger economically than than global peers, the dollar strengthens. Uh, but also, when you know we're in global recession fears, if the U.S. is going to go into recession, you know the dollar the dollar tends to strengthen on this sort of um, mm-hmm. you know of uh, quality i mean again, yeah yeah so i I think, I think everyone's sort of you know fairly well aware of that um, and, 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 you know, so you ask the question, what is it going to take for, for, for the, dollar, the dollar rally to end? Well, firstly, again, the, the point is on most fair value metrics, when you think about currency valuation, the dollar is clearly very overvalued against all, you know, global peers. Right. Again, there's a nuance here where actually that reading starts to be more severe. If you think about G9, you know, euro cable, things like this, rather than EMFX. And again, EM currencies, while they've weakened, you know, 8% or so against the dollar this year, you know, the euro's down like 15% now. So EM again has been has been defensive. Doesn't mean EM currencies wouldn't appreciate if the the broad dollar reverses, but actually some of those G9, you know, currencies would bounce back more. But anyhow, I think the two ingredients to 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 get the dollar weaker would be one You know, inflation coming down or inflation in a more comfortable zone, which, of course, probably revolves around a Fed pivot as well. I view those things as in a way fairly, fairly similar. But then secondly, you know, we've pivoted, I think, from inflation risks to growth risks, where most people are really focused now on the cyclical picture. You know, some improvement on the cyclical picture. Again, I think that's quite premature. So probably it's the inflation side first. um, But those two ingredients are are usually what would form a dollar, a dollar peak.
1: Yeah, you know, Caesar, I mean, you hit on a really good point and for our listeners again. You know, if you invested in EM local debt, just, you know, as a straight dollar investor, unhedged basis, you're down 16, 17% year to date. You know, if you had diversified your funding currencies, for example, if you were funding in pound, you know, you'd be up four and a half percent year to date. If you were funding in Japanese yen, you'd be up, you know, the same four or 5% year to date. So, you know, it just shows, you know, maybe diversifying across your funding currencies, even from the perspective of a dollar investor is probably the best way to take advantage of these kind of, you know, relative dislocations across the whole of the currency market EM included. So, you know, Before I lose you, I have to ask you, you know, look, out along the frontier, we all know the problems that are being had. We know about Zambia, Pakistan, Sri Lanka, you name it. We know the IMF has actually, you know, kind of stepped up here, you know, and they've definitely been helpful in uh, alleviating some of the near term pressure. But, you know, EM public debt is now 66% of GDP. It was 54% back in 2019. We know, you know, rising interest rates, weaker currencies, below-trend GDP. It's just going to make obligations harder to service. Um, what are your thoughts on, you know, social unrest, which which which, you know, economies operating out along the frontier are most at risk of not just default, but really just, you know, you know, broad, you know, um, disruption that, you know, kind of spills over from the populace into its banking system and abroad. I mean, do you see any real risk there and which ones stand out?
0: Yeah, I mean, so you know, one on the social unrest, again, I think we're in a little bit better place than we were earlier in the year in terms of food or agri prices Interesting. and yeah that that always has me worried on the so, on the social side but I think we're in a better place there but you know, the broader point you make is uh, yes, like the the circle, the pocket of vulnerability, which really is in the frontier and high yield sector of, of EM, you know, is widening, right? As you as you stay with yeah. stronger dollar and ever rising rates, I mean, that does that does that does matter. So we tend to look at you know who's got paper coming due, who doesn't have reserve cover, and so on. And again, the, to me, there's two points to make. The first is this really is I don't want to say niche because that makes it sound too small, but this is really an issue for the frontier markets and the countries you mentioned. Uh, if you looked at the Of the sort of dollar coming due versus reserves. It is the places like Sri Lanka and Pakistan that looked fairly vulnerable. I would probably think, you know, Ghana, uh, even Egypt, I think probably might be the next ones with a little more vulnerability uh, on that. But again, to me, the bottom line is. The broad major EM economies, the things that are in the MSCI EM and the GBIM universe, I think have proper reserve cover. And this higher rate environment is problematic for the cyclical outlook, for you know, the returns you'll get in those assets going forward, less about balance sheet risks and left tail risks in those, in those major EM economies. I think there's, a, there's an important nuance
1: there. Cesar, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts, your views with us here today. Thank you for joining me. Always a pleasure speaking with you. And thank you to our audience of ever enduring, always committed emerging market enthusiasts for your time and continued interest. Keep well, stay safe and keep moving forward. Thank you so much.